But I don't think everyone should be a leader of people. Welcome back to Clarity in Conversations. Well, how you described it is exactly what happened, Frank. It, it, it proves why you have a podcast. Miscommunication in offices around the world leads to delayed projects, frustrated colleagues, and missed sales. This can be avoided. There's fascinating research that gives insight into how to have creative dialogues and clear conversations in the office and at home. Full of practical tips, insightful research, and inspiring guests, this is Clarity in Conversations, a podcast by Frank Garten. Hi there, and nice you're listening to this podcast again. This is episode six already of Clarity in Conversations, a podcast full of practical tips and advice to improve the quality of your conversations. Last week's episode was a special one. I talked with Eric Boers about Socratic dialogues. Those are dialogues in which you need to be patient. And that's difficult in conversation because people tend to be impatient but that's hard in the boardroom we're not that patient and that of course is strange because in boardrooms people should think about strategic issues instead of solving operational problems that was eric boers it was nice to receive so many positive responses after last week not only on the content of the podcast but certainly also on the style of it which was a bit more personal this time and less polished as some of you said to me a great tip and I'll take it on board. Now for this episode this week, I wanted to talk about difficult conversations. These are some dialogues in the office that we find particularly hard for some reason, like a negative performance evaluation or a contract termination or even a talk to give somebody some negative feedback. Now many things can get in the way of delivering a message clearly and directly. And that's why we call these conversations difficult. Scott Miller is Executive Vice President of Thought Leadership at Franklin Covey in the US. I recently read his book Management Mess to Leadership Success, a book that devotes two chapters on challenging conversations and straight talk. Reason enough to get in touch with Scott and ask him for a few practical tips. Scott has been for 24 years in Franklin Covey, a company that works with clients on organizational performance improvement. Scott is also a weekly columnist and the host of two podcasts. And as the author of Management Mess to Leadership Success, he positions himself as somebody who can help you to not make a mess of your management career, but to become the leader people love to follow. Now, Management Mess, a fascinating title. Over to Scott to tell us what that title means. Well, so I named this book Management Mess to leadership success because the fact of the matter is, Frank, we've all got a mess going on in our lives. You know, people know them. Our receptionist knows our messes. The CEO knows them. Your boss knows them. Heck, your coworkers, your team members, they, are, they don't just know your messes. They're talking about them. So I right. think as leaders, it's important that we show the confidence, the vulnerability to just own our messes because when we're comfortable talking about our messes, it gives others permission to talk about and own theirs. That doesn't mean, Frank, that you license bad behavior or that you wallow in your messes. No, I think part of moving to leadership success is recognizing that we all have some messes. And as the leader, the safer we can build a culture, the, the safer it is to have everybody else talk about our messes as the leader, the more we can have other people discuss theirs and then they can quicker more rapidly move to success. Yeah. Yeah. And we, we often don't 
admit in the office that we made a mess, but we did, right? Oh my goodness, no, it's the opposite, right? As leaders, so often it's been deeply enculturated into us that we're supposed to be the smartest person in the room, have all the answers, you know, separate some formal distance. Every culture is different, Frank, right? But generally, I think leaders are quite reticent. They're, they're not comfortable acknowledging that they, that they don't have all the answers. You know, there's a great book that has really instructed my learning, and it's written by Liz Wiseman. She's an American, a former executive at Oracle, mm-hmm. and she wrote a book called Multipliers. And I highly recommend this book to your listening audience. The premise of the book is that leaders, in fact, are not supposed to be the smartest person in the room. Your job is not to be the genius, but rather the genius maker of others. And I think that quote in itself is important enough to repeat. Your job is not to be the genius, but rather the genius maker of others. The nice thing of Scott's book is that he writes the entire book based on his own experiences as a leader. And the start of that career was not great. I cite Scott from his own book. It was 2004 and I was halfway into my six-year reign of terror in Chicago. Paul walked into my office one morning and said to me, Scott, everyone here hates you. And if something doesn't change, we're all going to quit. You had to read that one quote from the book, didn't you, Frank? (laughs) You know, honestly, it's an actual, it's a factual recreation. I mean, here's what happens, I think. I think too often, Frank, people are lured into leadership positions and not led. It starts with this premise. I don't think everyone should be a leader of people. I think philosophically, I can buy into the idea that everybody has leadership talents within them. It might be leading a project, leading an initiative, but I don't think everyone should be a leader of people. And I think too often, organizations promote the best individual contributor into becoming a leader of people. You know, they, 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 they promote the most creative digital designer or the most efficient di- uh, dental hygienist or the top producing salesperson. Yeah. You know, rarely do those competencies translate into leading people. You know, That's right. If you think yeah. about the talents that make a great salesperson, you know, they're very competitive. They like the spotlight. They like to shine. They like to win. Those are great skills for a salesperson. Right. I think we yeah. both know those are horrible skills to be a sales leader. So I, I think what happened to me was I was at one point the classic kind of top revenue producing salesperson, right? Meeting my forecast, my clients were winning. I was exceeding my revenue goals. I was killing it on the sales side. So naturally, when the sales leader moves on, they promote me and no one sat me down and said, Scott, here's why we're promoting you. You have these seven or eight great talents. And we need you to know that tomorrow, when you become a sales leader, you're going to literally have to stop doing three of these seven skills. They're actually not skills that will help you in your new role. Leave them behind. And by the way, here's five or six new skills that, frankly, Scott, you don't possess yet. But you're going to have to learn these over the coming days, weeks, and months. And that's kind of what happened in Chicago. I was a very competent sales producer. I was a pretty decent sales manager. But I hadn't let you, learned the, um, the, the insight that once you become a leader of people, your job is now to learn how to get results with and through 
other people, not yeah, rush in true. and save the day, not suffocate people, not turn people into your clones. And that's what I was doing. And this intervention had a transformative impact on kind of understanding, gosh, what is my new job? What is my new job? Often when we're promoted, this is because we did our job very well. And then we get promoted. We get an entirely new role where we need totally different skills that we have not been trained in. Right. I mean, that's insane, right? I mean, you know, leading people requires you to move outside of your comfort zone. You need to have high courage conversations. You need to confront people on behaviors that perhaps are are blind to them, right? Everyone's got blind spots. But I mean, one of the greatest gifts you can give your people that you lead is to be able to have these high courage conversations. These are not taught naturally. Our parents didn't necessarily teach us how to talk straight or move outside of our comfort zone. But these are these are responsibilities that too many leaders uh, don't step to the plate. And that's why people keep repeating the same behaviors over and over again, because their leader did not exercise the courage to sit them down confront them and help them understand and address their blind spots. Right. Yeah. Well, well, what makes it even more curious for me is that after your colleague told you this, he closed the door and the two of you sat down for two hours, which I can imagine must not have started easily. I mean, when you get a message like that from a colleague, um, the first thing that comes up is a defensive response. Like I'm going to show you who's the boss here, but then, I guess my question is, how did you learn from the events call? Well, how you described it is exactly what happened, Frank. It, it, it proves why you have a podcast, because you have a lot of insight. It did start defensive, and I began to better understand, I think, what his intent was. His intent wasn't to quit, although he would have. His intent wasn't to try to drive me out, although that might have happened had I not changed. His intent was to improve the culture for everyone. And kind of what happened was, is the more we started listening to each other, he began to better appreciate some of the pressures that I was under, the size of the team. I, mean, I was leading a team that was nearly three times the size of another division, that I was the youngest managing director in the company. And I was kind of struggling to find the skills that I had actually been, you know, on a very difficult journey in this new leadership job. So he began to better understand me. I began to better understand him. And I think the magic of it was we both trusted each other. I trusted that his intent was to help the situation. And he entrusted that my intent was not to be a jerk, right? Or to make people cry. My intent was to figure out how to be a better leader. Now, listen, I was not all bad news, right? I mean, that story isn't exaggerated, but I, <laughs> I, I, in many ways, had a lot of great leadership competencies. People's careers were growing. I, I was building lots of careers, but the pressure was getting to me. And I think I took out of it the fact that I didn't need to be in charge of everything. I didn't need to fix everything. My way was not the only way. I came out of that meeting realizing that, the team members can get great results. It may be different than how I would do it. My job was to help to build their capabilities, their talent, and their competency to achieve the results that I needed. It's, a, it's the reality of so many people who are in leadership positions, who become a team manager or whatever. And the thing we do in offices is pretend we're, we're doing fine. We, we held up the, you know, the, the, the image that we're in control, that we know what we're doing. Um, 
And and I think the underlying cause is that there's there's never very direct feedback. Right. I mean, what what your colleague did was quite unique. Coming into oh, your absolutely. office, closing yeah, the door and yeah. being very straight. Yeah. yeah, and that took a tremendous amount of courage from him. He, he was not a naturally courageous person. I also think in, in a previous interview, I had a host offer, well, Scott, you must have done something to make him feel comfortable. And I think that is also true, right? I mean, I paint myself as a pretty horrible leader at the time, but I think one of the things, Frank, I had done well was I did create an environment where it was safe to talk straight. It was safe to come in and close the door and confront me on something I had done or a cultural initiative. So I, I, I do think I deserve a little bit of credit in setting the conditions where he felt he would not be you know, uh, retaliated against or discriminated against. I, I went on, I think I worked there for another three years as the leader. He and I are still very good friends. He has gone on, can you believe it, to eclipse me in the firm. And he is now the president and COO. I report to him now, which is, you can imagine, fraught with awkwardness and frustration and delight and honor and pride, right? I mean, it's a very complicated relationship, but we try to live these principles that Franklin Covey teaches. And for the most part, it's been very instrumental in maintaining, you know, a nearly 15-year friendship with this person. Yeah. Well, that, that's a great bridge immediately to the topic why I wanted to speak to you, uh, Scott, which is leading difficult conversations. Um, that's the main topic that, that I was curious about and, and happy I found you. Uh, that was a, a difficult conversation for him. It was for you. Um, and in your book, you even say, if as a manager, you don't lead difficult conversation, then you need to step down immediately, leave your job. I mean, it's, it's one of the crucial things, uh, one, one of the central elements of any job. Could you describe why it's so important to be able to lead difficult conversations? Sure. You know, I wrote this book, Management Mess to Leadership Success, because I wanted readers, listeners of the audio version to better appreciate and learn from all these messes that I'd had in my own career, right? There are some successes in the book. There are some messes. I, I took about a year with some colleagues and I collated, uh, congealed 30 challenges that every leader faces in their world. Yes, there are more than 30, but that seemed overwhelming. So I picked 30. And number 12, challenge 12 is in fact called lead difficult conversations. And, I, and I pray, I'm quite straightforward. As you quoted me accurately, if you can't, as a leader, summon the courage, the stamina, the diplomacy to have these conversations, you don't deserve to be a leader. Now, listen, nobody comes out of the womb at birth leading difficult conversations, right? These take practice. You'll mess some of them up. I'm happy to even talk about, you know, how to have some of them. But it's so important you have these to your people because, like I mentioned earlier in our conversation, Frank, everybody has blind spots, right? Frank, you're not as punctual as you think you are. I'm not as kind as I portray myself to be. People aren't as collaborative. They're not as gentle. They're not as wise. You get it. Everybody has blind spots and they remain blind spots until our self-awareness is increased. I don't know about you, but I don't all of a sudden, you know, walk around the office and one day sit down and say, you know what? I just realized I'm not as kind as I think I am. No, someone has to tell me that. Yeah. So if you want to increase your self-awareness, which is instrumental to your relationships at home with your partner or spouse, at work with your colleagues, with your boss, you've got to increase your self-awareness. And that usually comes from people giving you feedback. So as a leader, 
It is incumbent. It is, it is vital. It's a, it's a necessary job skill that you talk to your people about what's going on in their lives. Maybe not personally, primarily professionally. Every culture has different protocol and different boundaries, but it's the greatest gift you can give someone who works for you is right, to call yeah. out yeah. and let them better appreciate something that they're doing that they may not notice. And again, as a leader, you have to separate your opinions and your emotions and your feelings with fact. You know, in yesterday's meeting, you said this, and I don't know if you noticed it, but Tina was offended. You get the point. It's, it's, it's a skill, Frank, that is developed over time with lots of practice, lots of role play, lots of mistakes. But over time, you will learn as a leader to balance courage and consideration, diplomacy, so that when you have these conversations, you actually leave people better off than when you found them. So having difficult conversations is a key skill. But why do we call these conversations difficult? Is that the right word? Are these conversations not just more uncomfortable than difficult? And can we learn to see them as comfortable so that they go better? Can we reframe them as something positive? Right. I mean, a difficult conversation can be a positive conversation. I, I think a lot of leaders, they're like me, right? They, they become a leader for sometimes the wrong reason, sometimes the right reason. We want to earn more money. We want a better title, a better office. We want to, you know, build our influence and our power. I get that. That's not all good or bad. But in, in, in all of that comes this necessity of having high courage conversations. And I think oftentimes they are difficult. It doesn't mean they have to be negative, to your point. But yeah. a, a lot of people have to, like I said, practice or role play them. And if you want, I can give you some suggestions on how to build that competency. But all of us as leaders will face difficult conversations, to your point, we can hopefully take a negative and turn it into a positive if we approach it properly, use the right terms, and declare our intent. So yes, we can start to see these conversations as something else than only difficult. Yes, they are difficult, yet at the same time, they are necessary, they clarify a lot, they'd better not to be avoided. I don't avoid them, I'm better at them, but I think with practice, I'm not sure it makes perfect, but I think the more you have them, the better your skills are built and the more you do things like soften your approach. You're more aware of your body language. You're more aware of, you know, not waiting five minutes into the conversation to disclose the key point, but you sit someone down in a, in a non-intimidating environment, perhaps sit next to them. And you look at them in the eye and you say, hey, Frank, I've called you in today because I need to have a high courage conversation with you. Yeah. And unfortunately, today is going to be your last day in the organization. And I know that is upsetting news. Let me take a few moments, explain to you why, and you can ask any questions you have. And my intent is to make your exit as easy and as um, uh, uh, safe as possible. And I hope that we can work together to find you another great role outside the organization. You can see some things I did, right? I slowed yeah. down. I tempered my voice. I shared the news up front immediately in a very clear, but hopefully non-threatening way. And I think, and I also declared my intent. My intent now is to help you move out of the firm in a safe and sort of um, comfortable way. 
and help you find another opportunity. Now, again, I didn't practice all that properly, but uh, it does get easier. Maybe it gets more natural. A role play in which Scott gives an example of how to fire me in such a way that he is straight to the point, yet still empathetic for what's happening to me. It sounds natural, but is it an easy conversation for Scott to have? No, it isn't. But maybe he can try again, simply admitting that it's not easy. Let me role play it again. Frank, thank you for coming in today. I, I appreciate your time. I need to share with you some important news that quite frankly, I'm a bit nervous about and I might um, use the wrong words. So I want you to forgive me if I don't say it exactly right, but I need for you to know upfront that the company has made a decision to end your employment and today will be your last day working here at Franklin Covey. Now, I know that is difficult news, and I hope I have um, delivered it in a respectful way. What I would like to do is take a few moments, allow you to gather your thoughts and your emotions, and I'm going to share a couple of the reasons why this decision has been made, why it is not reversible, and my intent is to allow you to ask any questions that you have, including if you need to um, perhaps take a few moments. I understand if you might get emotional, all these are natural reactions, but my intent is beyond allowing you to feel very comfortable and leave understanding why the decision has been made, more importantly, to help you make this the safe and as easy as possible transition for you outside of the firm to find a new job that might be better suited for your talents, your passions, and your skills. Would I be happier with the way I was fired at this point? No, not at all. I was just sacked. But that's not the point here. We're looking for how to make this more natural for Scott to do. And by admitting he was nervous, he became more human, more vulnerable if you like, and he did still deliver the message. A great tip. So what else concretely can we do to learn to have these courageous conversations more? You know what, you could role play it with a friend or colleague in confidence. Role play it with your partner or spouse. I think the more times you role play it, confident colleagues can give you feedback on your body language, your hand gestures, your eye contact, your tone of voice. How threatening is it? How inviting is it? What kind of words do you use? The first thing is to role play it. Yeah, and then to uh, practice, practice, practice. And practice. Right? Yeah. And, and not so practice. I'm not practice so much where it comes across as robotic or rehearsed or cold, right? By any means, because it's not going to work out exactly like you role played it. The second piece of advice is I already shared with you, which is to admit you're uncomfortable. Admit it. That's fine. I think it's a bit disarming to say, hey, Frank, I've called you in today to have a, a sensitive conversation. I want you to know that what is discussed in here will not leave this room. I will not share this with anyone and you have my word, but I've been watching you the last few weeks as it relates to the accountability meeting. And I'm finding that you're slipping into a practice of perhaps blaming other people. And I've wondered if you've noticed that on your own. And if you thought that I'm capturing that correctly, because I've noticed a couple of times I've seen you repeat this behavior, and I wondered if you had any idea of as to perhaps why you're doing this. I'm here to help you. I'm here to help you build your brand and have a great career here for a long time to come. And I think this is tripping you up, and I want to help you get on top of it. Now, I might not use all the right words, Frank, or I might even have assessed the situation wrongly. I don't think I have, but I'm very open to your opinion on this. 
what do you think's going on that's making me observe this in the meetings? Just to admit that you're uncomfortable. Admit yeah. that it's awkward. Admit that you may not have the full picture. You may not have all the facts. Put it onto them and say, what do you think's going on? Now, if they deny it completely and try to obfuscate, you might have to turn it up a bit and say, I'm so happy you shared your, your opinion. You know, Frank, that you don't see this has me even a little more concerned because others have talked to me about it. Or I have witnessed this on several occasions, so I do think it's something that we need to discuss. Let's take it a step further. If your intent is good, if your intent is to help the other person, that will come out. That will show in the words you use, in your eye contact. Your heart will come out in the, in, in the conversation. If your intent is good, it will show, which is why it's important to not just declare your intent to the other person, declare it to yourself before the meeting. Ground yourself and say, what is it I want to come out of this meeting? What is it I want Frank to know, understand, confront, and do differently? And if you're clear on your own intent, it will more naturally progress throughout the conversation. Now, if you if you go to your current employment, uh, uh, Scott, you're, you're executive vice president of Franklin Covey for thought maybe, leadership. Maybe not after this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> you never know. You never know. You, you were the one, who, the, the one who fired me twice today. <laughs> That's um, true. Sorry. But but in your work, you you, you meet a lot of leaders. Um, you help leaders become more successful in their jobs. Franklin Covey is known to yes. do very good leadership development programs and help people develop. Is it true that leaders really get better at this over time? Uh, I, and, and the background to that question is that I, you, you know, a lot, lot of people say you're either good at this or you're not. I mean, I'm not good at having difficult conversations or I'm not good at listening. Do you see in practice that, that people rapidly can change their behavior as a result of these kind of trainings? Oh, no question. No question. I don't think anybody is born a leader. I think most of us, if we choose to be a leader of people and we're aware of, you know, minimally these specific 30 challenges, self-awareness is half of the, half the battle, right? Is if, if I know that I'm a poor listener, I can't fix that until you give me some tools. Okay, so why am I a poor listener? Well, it's because I'm interrupting or I'm asking too many questions, or once I realize that I'm on my own narrative or my own timeline, you know, there's, I mean, the more you read this book, quite frankly, I think the more people can become aware of why they're in this mess and how they move to success. Like I am a horrible listener, Frank, because I'm always interrupting. You know, the psychology shows that all of us have a subconscious alarm clock that goes off in our mind when we're talking to somebody else because we think that other people should stop talking at a certain time duration, right? I think Frank should talk for 28 seconds and stop. Frank thinks that Yolanda should talk for 42 seconds and stop. And when that, that alarm clock metaphorically goes off in our mind and then we, we, when we think the other person should stop talking, it's usually why we interrupt. Well, once you know that as a leader, and you're cognizant of that, now you can be less repetitive of your interrupting skills. You know why. I think all of these leadership capabilities, including leading difficult conversations, can absolutely become easier, not easy, with practice 
and with more tools and to understand what are your strengths and what are your weaknesses. And you know what? You may have to have someone in the meeting with you the first few times, right? Watch someone else role play it or have someone come back and tell you how they've done it, what's worked well for them. I, I'm convinced now after 30 years in the industry, the vast majority of us, majority of us if our intent is right, and our desire is to help other people. Our technique is often eclipsed if we declare our intent up front and kind of struggle through it. You will get better over time. Right. Wow. Um, Scott, you told me that, that this is not the only book you're writing. Uh, Management Mess to Leadership Success is in the stores now, uh, but there's a follow-up coming already, right? There is. I think this idea of identifying your messes, owning them, being proud of them, making it comfortable, sometimes even comical to talk about what your challenges are. Again, not to stagnate, but to show self-awareness and allow others to do the same is, 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 is hitting a nerve with people. I think so many of these leadership books, Frank, are too academic and they're too unrelatable. I, I wanted to write a book that was very real, very vulnerable, and very relatable. The book did extremely well. It's won numerous awards. It debuted at number one on Amazon for six solid weeks. So my publisher, Mango Publishing, based in Miami, Florida, has signed me to uh, seven or eight new titles in the Mess to Success series. I've just completed the manuscript for the second book. It's called Marketing Mess to Brand Success, oh. 30 Challenges to Transform Your Organization's Brand and Your Own. That book will be coming out sometime in the fall of 2020. And I've just begun the next one, which will be Job Mess to Career Success. And then following that will be additional books around communication, sales, parenting. I'm most excited to write. I have three boys, Frank. Uh, uh, let's see, five, eight, and nine. And yeah. my nine-year-old, his name is Thatcher, named after Margaret Thatcher. He and I are going to co-write Parenting Mess to Launch Success. That'll come out in about three or four years. Oh, wow. You're co-writing with your son. I am. I'm very excited about it. Wow. In fact, last week he told one of his classmates that he needs to go meet with his publisher for a very important meeting. And I was kind of just <laughs> both horrified and delighted to hear him say that. <laughs> he's, he's nine, you said. He's nine. Yes, sir. <laughs> he's my oldest. Writing a book with your oldest son. That was Scott Miller, Executive Vice President of Franklin Covey and author of the book Management Mess to Leadership Success. And like every week in this podcast, I reflect on the interview afterwards with Elste Meyer, researcher communication and innovation at Fontes University of Applied Science in the Netherlands. And this time, more than ever, I was curious to hear how she had experienced this interview and the various role plays in it. First of all, what an energy, you know, some energy in, in Scott. I really like that. I think I'd like to talk about that later as well still, uh, rather than on just the content. Uh, but first, what stood out, um, I think the technique of role play. Because um, I, I like it, I think. Um, and I'm a bit hesitant because I actually, listening to it, I was like, right, I want to ask him 10 questions now about this. And you mean the role playing he was doing, right, in the interview? Well, yeah, but yeah. so he, he, he did the role play just to illustrate actually uh, that role. He says role playing is actually a good way to deal with difficult conversations. Yeah. And um, 
I thought, right, okay, I agree, because uh, practice, um, you know, at least you get aware, self-awareness he talks about as well, you get aware of your body language, the words you use, your voice, your intonation, all that stuff, so you can get feedback on that. Um, the only question I had, and, and a bit of doubt, is um, I practice that time with someone, but of course that person I practice with is never going to be the person I'm I'm. I'm actually going to talk to or have the difficult conversation with. And um, we have to admit, and we've spoken about that before, that in an interaction, it's always two or more people that kind of create a reality and the sense and the meaning and everything. So maybe you can practice all you want and you can do your role play and be very self-aware of all your triggers and your body language, etc. But when something happens in the in reality then i i actually think that you can control that and you can yeah. practice that so um yeah so what you're saying is with role playing i may have practiced myself but mm. that doesn't mean that i role play the real conversation no, that's no, coming no no exactly yeah. and and um i may like let's say you have the conversation with me for example um or someone has a conversation with me and then i come in and um, the first impression is, oh my God, she's wearing such an ugly dress, or um, I look, ve- I ha- I have been crying up front or something. So you're, whatever you've practiced, your role play, of course, will get a completely different turn. And I I think, of course, your experience, and I re- really agree with him, your experience will make you know how to react on that, of course, then uh, in its turn as well. But you have to realize that role play is still with that person you're doing the role play with and not with the actual person. And, yeah. and the dynamics will be will be different because it's a different person. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I'd love to have a talk with him about that, actually. <laughs> it can be done. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, and actually, so this was like, I know we have like my role has been to really kind of see, right, uh, what I've heard, how have I seen that in business? What's my experience um, with the people I've observed um, in my studies as well? Um, and I think in this case, I, um, I'd like to take a bit of a different yeah. uh, perspective on it because the interview itself is very uh, interesting. And he, you, you, both of you talk about leadership. And actually, I think what Scott does is really put himself forward as a leader as well during the interview. And that's, of course, extremely interesting in itself, uh, you know, being all into uh, linguistic analysis and etc. Um, but he profiles himself as a leader with certain uh, characteristics and, and a certain identity, for example, and you see that in the examples that he used in the role play as being compassionate, yeah, exactly. um, as yeah. caring for other people, um, also uh, as no nonsense. So these, for example, three characteristics is what he uh, sells himself as a leader. Um, I think we have to realize that that is true for him and that is his identity as a leader, but I don't think it necessarily means that leadership is defined like right. that. Right, should be like that always. No, yeah. um, and of course we know from theory there's so many different models on leadership and leadership styles, and I, I don't necessarily want to go into those, but um, we, we do have to realize that there's different, you know, leadership is actually, you can have certain characteristics, but they're only valid in so far as other people uh, think they should be your 
uh, characteristics as well. So maybe in a certain setting I can be, uh, so I can say I'm, I'm compassionate and I think that's good leadership, but I could work in a setting, I can't imagine one actually, but theoretically I could work in a setting where that's absolutely not part of leadership. Yeah, but there's no compassion, but still you can identify other traits exactly. that belong to good exactly. leadership. Yeah. yeah, so I'm, I'm kind of curious on, on how he thinks those are really embedded and kind of strictly um, attached to the definition of a good leader. Um, also, you know, he made the distinction between management and leadership. We really have to, like, I can't stress enough how different that is indeed. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, this was, a, it, this was a, a different interview, I think, to listen to because in the interview itself, there were so many things I had questions about and that I could elaborate on <laughs> still. So, but, you know, we'll do that another time. <laughs> and that was Els de Meijer reflecting on the interview with the energetic Scott Miller. Three tips to bring more clarity into your conversations. Tip one. When you need to have a difficult conversation with someone that you do not look forward to, just put these nerves or doubts openly at the table. It makes you more human and it takes some of the tension away. I need to have a difficult conversation with you today and honestly, I was not looking forward to it. I find it really hard, but I still think I need to tell you what I think. Tip two. Don't hold off difficult conversations. Because we find them difficult, we tend to delay them. I first need more information. I first need more evidence. Let's see if the person doesn't improve from himself. All excuses that we tell ourselves not to have to do the uncomfortable thing. Force yourself to do what needs to be done. Then prepare it, practice it and do it. Tip three. In difficult performance or feedback discussions, give specific examples of what happened. Be very factual and delay your judgment. Just tell what happened and what was the effect of it. And then ask the other person whether the facts were right. And then ask him or her what they thought of the situation themselves. Listen very well to the answer. So that was Clarity in Conversations of this week, with lots of tips and great advice from Scott Miller. Scott was talking about how to have difficult conversations and we shared many of his views. I'm interested to hear your best practices as well, as all of us have had difficult conversations in the past. What worked well? In a future episode, I'd be willing to speak to people about their experience having difficult conversations because I think it's key. I'd be very happy if you can share one of your most memorable experiences of having difficult conversations with others. Send me a message at frank at clarityinconversations.nl. Again, that's frank at clarityinconversations.nl. I'd love to hear from you. And then let's look forward to next time. In two weeks in Clarity and Conversations, I'm going to speak with Mieke Coupé. That's a good thing, actually. Mieke is certified in all the methods that Brene Brown is using in her work. A beautiful interview about safety, vulnerability, threat and shame. It can be very inspiring because it means that if the leader, the, the, the one that's leading us says, I don't know, help me out here. It means we can do the same. And we don't need to keep up appearances. Keeping up appearances is killing. But that's next time. For now, thanks to Scott Miller, author of Management Mess to Leadership Success, and to Els de Meyer for her reflections on the talk. But I don't think everyone should be a leader of people. Thanks for listening to Clarity and Conversations, a podcast by Frank Garten.